Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Associate Pastor Reverend Dave Kiefer. We continue our walk through the Gospel of Mark, taking a look at the life of Jesus. And from the beginning, Mark's Gospel has proclaimed that Jesus is a king who came to establish a forever kingdom for his people. John the Baptist said of this king, I am unworthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. Jesus' kingship wasn't merely human. No, the voice from heaven at his baptism confirmed that his was a divine kingship, saying, you are my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. As we walk through Mark, we've seen how how the people's understanding of Jesus' kingly power and authority develops over time. As they see his miracles, they begin to confess, we've never seen anything like this before in Mark 2. And who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him in chapter 4? And as they hear his words, they begin to question and wonder, who is this that forgives sins in chapter 2? And, and what is the wisdom given him? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, they say in chapter 6? Well, as Mark's account develops, Jesus is revealed to be a one-of-a-kind king. He teaches with absolute authority, and he exercises power not just over sickness, but over the creation itself. And the nearly unavoidable conclusion is surely this must be the long-awaited-for Messiah. And so in chapter 8, when Jesus is talking about things with his disciples, and he says, well, who do you say that I am? Peter declares the right answer, saying, you are the Messiah, meaning the promised and anointed king, the one who was promised to fulfill uh, all the promises made to Father Abraham and King David, the one who would establish an everlasting kingdom from every nation, tribe, and people group and language. Now, while Peter got the right answer in chapter 8 that Jesus is, in fact, king, it becomes immediately apparent that neither Peter, nor anyone else for that matter, really understood what the answer meant. For when Jesus adds information about his mission as the Messiah, as the King, in chapter 8, verse 31, he says that he must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and three days later rise again. On hearing this, Peter takes Jesus aside and uh, rebukes him for what appears to Peter as, as negative thinking. The question seems to be in the air, how would Jesus ever get others to follow him as the new king with such a, a pessimistic and negative message? But Jesus corrects Peter's misunderstanding. In fact, he, he rebukes him and he says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. And so, the central message of Mark's gospel 
is the kingship of Christ. Yes, Jesus is king, the divine king. No one could speak and act as Jesus did unless he had unique power and authority. But the question is, what kind of king is he? And it's becoming increasingly clear as we've read through the gospel accounts that he would establish a kingdom like any other, unlike any other, and he would do it in a totally, totally unexpected way. Not only would Jesus establish a kingdom that went beyond the national borders of Israel and reach every tribe and nation, but he would do it not through military might, but shockingly through dying for his enemies in order to liberate them. And Jesus predicts his own betrayal and death as the very means of establishing his rule and power, and that his mission is to be a dying king. And this was more than remarkable. I mean, this was, this was more than counterintuitive. This was the opposite of everyone's expectation for what the king should be. So unexpected that Jesus had to repeat the prediction over and over again, and they still didn't get it. He did it in chapter 9 and in chapter 10. And after the second time Mark records him predicting that he must suffer and die, the disciples, it says, did not understand him, and they were afraid to ask. And after the third time, James and John simply brush off Jesus' predictions about the cross, and they change the topic, redirecting Jesus to think about the glory of sitting on the throne and, and, well, who should sit on your right and left? And so this morning we arrive at Jesus' grand finale, which plays out just as Jesus predicted but nothing like anyone else expected. We behold Jesus, the dying king. And it's appropriate to call this Jesus' grand finale for the same reason it's right to call this same day Good Friday. Philip Yancey said it this way, Christians around the world remember the darkest of all days of human history, a day in which evil human beings violently rose up against God's own Son and murdered the only truly innocent human being who has ever lived. We remember that day not as Dark Friday, Tragic Friday, Disaster Friday. No, we commemorate Good Friday. That awful day made possible the salvation of the world and also Easter, an echo in advance of God's bright promise to make all things new. And so this is Jesus' grand finale, and it happens in three movements. We're going to look at the first movement, the final leg of his journey, two, the final hours, and third, the first responses once it's over. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to be together and to hear from your word. We thank you that you are God who has come into our broken world that you've come not just to reveal yourself, but to save a broken and rebellious people. And Lord, as we read what Jesus Christ did for us, I pray that it would sink deep into our hearts, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear and, and truly understand what you have accomplished for us. And I pray particularly for anyone who has never really grappled over what Jesus has done for them personally. I pray that you would be especially at work in their lives. 
And for those of us who identify with the cross and proclaim it, we pray that you would refresh us with these truths, that we may go forth from here, um, Lord, equipped for your good work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning than normal. I'm not going to read the whole passage and then comment. I'm going to read and comment as we go. So keep your Bibles at hand and keep them open. All right, so first, the final leg, verses 21 and 22. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry Jesus' cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. On this final stretch of Jesus' journey to the cross, all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record that the soldiers compelled an innocent bystander to carry Jesus' cross. Now, normally, the convicted criminal was expected to carry it, but Jesus' physical condition was so bad after his brutal beating that it's clear he was too weak to carry it all by himself. Now, Mark adds an extra detail that the other gospel writers leave out. He includes that this man, Simon of Cyrene, was the father of Alexander and Rufus. That's a strange detail to include. And, and this is remarkable because, remember, Mark by far is the shortest, most concise accounting of these events. And yet, he takes the time to tell us that this unfortunate bystander who was simply trying to get to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, who had nothing to do with Jesus beforehand from what we know, who is not only unlucky because he is randomly grabbed by soldiers and forced to participate in this execution, but also because in the sight of an ignorant crowd, Simon would appear, at least down the road, to be an associate of this condemned criminal by, criminal by being forced to carry Jesus' cross. Mark's the only historian that tells us about Simon's children, Alexander and Rufus. Why would Mark, normally who's so concise and pithy, add this extraneous detail? Theologians point out that these details indicate that this family was known to the first readers of the Gospel of Mark, and if so, had presumably become Christians. That's remarkable. It seems that their conversion story was so well known that Mark didn't need to say anything more. If that's the case, even during the last leg of Jesus' long march to Golgotha, we see the power of the gospel. Jesus, in his darkest hour, is breaking through all the chaos and the confusion and the fear. Sinclair Ferguson said it this way, in his weakest hour, Jesus began his reign of grace in one home and family. In other words, his sacrificial love breaks through. The power of his tender and meek presence breaks through, and Simon and his family are saved. How does this apply? Don't resent unwelcome interruptions. We need to learn to embrace them through faith as something ordained by God. You never know how God may work in and through your life as a result of unwelcome disruptions. What amazing life-changing fruit He may bear. 
I mean, after all, it's hard to imagine a more unwelcome interruption than being dragged out of a crowd on the way to worship and being forced to participate in an execution. But what at first appeared most unlikely, unlucky, excuse me, turned out to be a life-transforming privilege. This man, previously a nobody, a passerby of no significance, would be remembered and honored from generation to generation simply for his brief association with Jesus and his cross. His children would become heirs of Jesus' kingdom. Do you understand the encouragement that this would give later followers who chose to identify with Jesus no matter the cost, despising the shame of the cross? Do you see the meaning it would give to Jesus' words that if anyone would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. The example it would set and the unexpected blessings it would demonstrate. As we read through the Gospels, we're reminded that Jesus' grace often broke into people's lives through interruptions that most viewed as very unwelcome. You have the roof-breaking friends of the paralytic, You have the hungry crowds that the disciples just want to send home. You have the bleeding woman. You have have the little children. And so it should come as little surprise that during the last leg of Jesus' journey to the cross, Jesus' reign of grace would begin in the life of Simon's family through what was no doubt a most unwelcome and chaotic interruption. So if you want to see and experience God's grace in daily tangible ways. You need to put yourself in the path of sorrows, on the Via Della Rosso. We need to learn to embrace God's disruption and interruptions. We need to stop just beelining it to the most convenient thing. Stop walking straight, you know, making a straight line to the church parking lot, but sit and linger and get to know people Help with the ministries in the church. Help with refugee ministry, with tutoring. Adopt a refugee family. Volunteer in the nursery ministry, in the toddler room. You are sure to get lots of unwelcome interruptions. Make yourself available to elderly neighbors or overwhelmed single parents. In early June, uh, we took a missions trip from uh, to Cali, California, that this church sent nine of us uh, two, uh, we partnered with E3 Ministries, and we had the privilege of going into some of the poorest neighborhoods and declaring, uh, giving testimony to this dying King Jesus. And um, most people, we interrupted uh, to share about this dying King who, who came for them. Um, but as we were talking about the gospel, others would often overhear what we were talking about, and they would interrupt us seeking to know more and asking questions. Jeff Thompson, a, a man from Texas on the E3 Columbia team, uh, shared a note with Sam and Gracias, who was the overall director of the Columbia trip that we took back in June. And the note that Jeff shared with Sam And the team was one that he had received uh, when he was at Starbucks. He had been talking about Jesus and he had, you know, with with some people. And he he left the table for some reason, I'll go to the bathroom or something. And when he came back, he found this note left at his table. And I want to read it to you. Hi, I'm very shy and I don't mean to bother you. 
I didn't intend to listen, but I couldn't help but overhear. Please keep doing your work for the broken. It must be hard and so much easier to focus on normal church people, but it's us that need you the most. The most broken people only run from the church because we feel unaccepted. We feel how much work we are. We feel like burdens. We also feel like most people in the church want nothing to do with us because we may not live ideally. We may be strippers just trying to feed our kids and get through nursing school to give them a better life. We may be hurting for the whole world, and sometimes the, quote, TV and the, quote, political Christians aren't what we think Jesus really wanted. We may have grown up in the church, but felt pushed out when we had big questions because they required perhaps uncomfortable answers and discussions. But please keep listening to the broken. They need you more than anyone. They need the church when they are on drugs. They need the church if they're gay. They need the church if they are homeless. They need the church if they are prostitutes. They need the church if they are teen mothers. They need you. I'm sorry if this is weird. I have horrible anxiety, so I can't approach people with words. I can only write. And she signs it, just a broken mom trying to put it back together. This note makes me kind of emotional. But do you know the joy of putting yourself in the pathway of sorrows, the pathway of the cross? Jeff was caught red-handed in putting himself in the pathway of the cross by speaking the gospel in word and deed, and he was overheard. And to be clear, the pathway of the cross is a path of chaos and confusion and We often don't speak so openly because we're afraid of the mockery. It's a place of pain and weeping. It's a place where you will feel shame, and it will be exhausting. But as with Simon, Jesus' loving presence and the power of His gospel transforms lives one person at a time and then generations. So in summary, during the final leg of Jesus' journey, during his weakest moments, his, break, his grace breaks through to Simon, the foreigner from Cyrene and his entire family. It's beautiful. Next, the final hours. During the final hours, three hours are highlighted, the third, the sixth, and the ninth. And as each hour chimes, the author focuses on key events of the crucifixion to illustrate how utterly forsaken Jesus was on the cross. But in this dark forsakenness, Jesus, is, Jesus accomplishes His most important mission. So let's look at each hour in turn, and you'll see what I mean. At the third hour, we see Jesus forsaken by all. Verse 23, and they offered Him wine mixed with myrrh, but He did not take it. And they crucified Him and divided His garments among them casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. 
and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, ha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. A couple clarifications. The Jews measured time starting with sunrise. So the third hour would have been 9 a.m. And in verse 23, right before they crucify him, the soldiers offered Jesus wine mixed with myrrh, which was a pain-reducing narcotic. This may well have been the same tonic the soldiers themselves used to numb themselves from the emotional toll their job as executioners no doubt took upon them. But the king, King Jesus, must remain in control of all his faculties, so Jesus refused the tonic. Mark doesn't include the gruesome details of crucifixion. The process was well understood in that day. And, and truthfully, it was too disgraceful to talk about. Cultured Gentiles refrained from even using the word cross. But while the process was understood by Jews living under Rome, it's less understood by us today. And so I want to share an article from uh, the Journal of American, uh, from, the, from JAMA, the Journal of, of American Medical Association, a 1986 article that gives a rather comprehensive medical review of Christ's crucifixion. The authors detail that the pain endured by the weight of the body hanging from nails was unimaginable. These, ma- these nails damaged the medial nerves and tore at the tarsals. There was respiratory torture as they tried to breathe, cramping, pleural effusions. The journal concluded that, quote, death by crucifixion was in every sense of the word excruciating, excruciating, a term that literally means out of the cross. While the physical pain Jesus endured is hard to imagine and overwhelming simply to consider, let alone endure, it's not the only kind of suffering described in these verses. The cross literally added insult to injury. Jesus suffered appalling social rejection. Mockery abounds throughout this passage I just read. Notice verse 24. The opportunistic and indifferent soldiers gambled for the cloak off his back. Verses 29 and 30, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads at him, saying, ha, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it. Save yourself and come down from the cross. In verse 32, even the criminals crucified beside him reviled him. And you look at verse 31, the chief priests and the scribes mock him, saying he saved others, but he can't save himself. Come down from the cross that we might see and believe. See, Jesus Jewish antagonists remembered well the shame of the cross. In fact, they quoted it elsewhere in, uh, from Deuteronomy 21-23, which says, anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. Kent Hughes points out that all this mockery 
had one point, one unmistakable point to show that it was madness to suppose that anyone crucified would pretend to be God. What does this mean? Jesus was mocked not for being a good teacher. He was mocked for claiming to be the divine king, the savior of the world. And in this mockery, we see every class of people rejecting and forsaking him. Of course, there are those who who did not know any better, right? The ignorant crowd, the passerbys, the soldiers simply doing their job. But also, he was forsaken and mocked by those who should have known better, the chief priests and the scribes, those who knew the Old Testament prophecies, who had heard Jesus' teaching, even seen His miracles, they admitted even in their mockery, He saved others. Why won't He save Himself? And even His disciples, though not joining in the mockery, nearly all are absent from the scene, forsaking Jesus at His greatest hour of need, having fled the authorities in absolute fear. See, Jesus was forsaken by every type of person, not just the irreligious criminals or ignorant Gentiles or political adversaries from Rome, but also He was forsaken and rejected by devout religious leaders who claimed to know and love the God of the Scriptures and by His closest disciples who had lived and ministered and partnered with Him for over three years. How does this apply? We must not be surprised by who is capable of forsaking Jesus. When push comes to shove, it seems that we are all capable. Remember, if if Jesus truly is God in the flesh, that means everyone owed Him love and obedience simply because they are His creatures. And so His people, in a certain sense, are not just the Jews, but everyone made in the image of God, and every class of humanity rejected Him. Now, from the third hour to the sixth hour, Jesus, the rightful King of the cosmos, is forsaken by nearly everyone. But then at the sixth hour, He is cosmically forsaken. Pick up in verse 33. The sixth hour, Jesus is forsaken by creation itself. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the sixth hour. Darkness covered the whole land. Now, we have to remember the sixth hour was noon. The ninth hour is 3 p.m. So, during the brightest part of the day, from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., an eerie darkness descends upon the whole land. It seems as if creation itself refuses to offer any light, any comfort. Instead, it abandons Jesus to the darkness. Now, some have suggested that this was a solar eclipse, but those only last a few minutes. And the Passover was celebrated during the full moon when a solar eclipse can't happen. Others have suggested a desert windstorm that kicks up enough uh, dust, but Passover was during the wet season, so we can rule out a windstorm. Whatever the instrumental cause for this physical darkness, we know God was miraculously intervening. Throughout the Bible, 
Darkness during the day is a sign of God's indignation and judgment. And the clearest example of this is the Exodus, when darkness fell over the entire land of Egypt before the Passover, because God's judgment was being poured out on every home not marked by a lamb's blood. This cosmic darkness from the sixth hour to the ninth hour indicates the displeasure and wrath of God, that as Jesus Christ takes the sins of the world upon Himself, the darkness is being poured out upon Him. During these three hours, Jesus is soaking up every bit of the darkness in order to extinguish it, every defilement, every betrayal, every indelible stain of wickedness. And as the righteous Son of God hangs suspended between heaven and earth on the cursed tree, taking in the darkness, He becomes the object of God's wrath. And God's judgment for sin is poured out on Him. Why? So that it doesn't have to be poured out upon us. See, the cross is God's strategic strike at sin. How so? Well, this leads us to what is described in the ninth hour. The ninth hour where we see Jesus forsaken by God. Verse 34, in the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling out Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with some wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. The cosmic darkness that covers the land is followed by a heart darkness that covers the hearts of many lingering at the foot of the cross. See, Jesus was accomplishing his greatest rescue plan in all of human history, and they didn't understand what was happening before their very eyes. Look at it. Jesus calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the bystanders misunderstood Jesus completely, thinking that he's calling out for Elijah? Now, some theologians think that it was an honest mistake. Eloi, which means my God, and Eli, which means the name of a prophet. Maybe the words Eloi and Eliah were easy to confuse, especially when expressed in the bloody sputtering of an exhausted man near death. But others think this misunderstanding far from honest. In fact, it was downright misingenuine. For Jesus was clearly speaking the, the first words of one of the most famous messianic psalms, Psalm 22, a psalm that for those who had eyes to see and ears to hear, it would enable them to understand what Jesus was doing, that this was part of God's rescue plan being accomplished before their very eyes. For the psalm continues after verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 7, all who see me mock me. Verse 8, they wag their heads saying, he trusted in the Lord, let him deliver him. Verse 15, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Verse 16, a company of evildoers encircle me. 
They have pierced my hands and my feet. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. See, Jesus was quoting Psalm 22 to show that this grand finale is not accidental. This was planned from long ago. And and the response, he wants them also to see the response that it should ultimately elicit because he seems to use Psalm 22 like a a key to a lock. And it's unlocking the mystery of the cross for anyone who has eyes to see and ears to hear. For if you know the psalm, which was written a thousand years earlier, it paints the picture of a rescue mission for, through one who is forsaken by God. And it ends with a great resolution of salvation and praising God for what He's done. Verse 27 and 28, all the ends of the earth shall remember this and turn to the Lord, and all the families of nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over all the nations. And verse 31, they shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn for God has done it. And so, there is an answer to Jesus' question, by the way, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's not rhetorical. Yes, he's quoting Psalm 22 to point to the meaning of what he's doing, but it's also a real question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken by God for us, for you, and for me. He was stricken and smitten and forsaken by God so that we never will be forsaken by God if only we have faith to trust in His rescue plan. See, He took the sins of the whole world and bore the wrath of God so that we could escape the wrath of God and be forgiven. Through the cross, God is healing the world of sin. With modern-day technology, we are learning how to win wars better, faster and with less casualties. Instead of bombing the entire landscape and destroying it, we can now make targeted strikes with GPS. And the goal of these strikes is to take out the oppressive leadership, to destroy the enemy's power centers, so that you can liberate the oppressed with the fewest casualties. And the cross of Jesus Christ is like modern-day GPS warfare. In the cross, God wins the battle against sin and death and the devil through a targeted strike. Not by carpet-bombing sinners, even though that would have worked too, but at what cost? He does it by drawing out the power of evil and exposing all wickedness, the wicked powers and principalities at the cross. And after drawing all the darkness upon himself, all the sin of the world, God vanquishes the enemy's power center in one targeted strike at ground zero at Calvary. And the serpent, the evil lord of this world, his head is crushed. And God's wrath is propitiated, and His people's sin was atoned for once and for all. It was done. And did it work? Absolutely. And we see the evidence for that immediately in both the spiritual plane and the physical plane in the first responses. We pick up with that in verse 38, the first responses. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw 
that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Jose and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, saw where he was laid. The most remarkable thing about Jesus' grand finale, it's the first response to it. And the first response is God's response on the spiritual plane, the vertical plane between God and man. And what happens? In verse 38, it describes how the curtain of the temple, which represented that separation between God and man, which was necessary due to our rebellion and sin, that that barrier was torn in two. How? From top to bottom, showing that God is the one creating free and open access to Him because of Jesus' death on a cross. So on the spiritual plane, God is the first responder. He's throwing wide open the door, welcoming sinners otherwise excluded, but now saved by grace because of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And he's welcoming these undeserving sinners into his presence directly to have intimate access with him with no more barriers. That's the first response. God and man are reconciled. The second response which is the first response on the human plane, demonstrates that the light of hope has already pierced the darkness. And it begins right at the foot of the cross, and it spreads out from there. And the first ray of hope enters the heart of the Roman centurion who was responsible for carrying out all of Pilate's orders and overseeing all the other guards who just carried out Jesus' crucifixion. Now, this man no doubt had overseen hundreds, if not thousands, of such deaths. Yet something about Jesus and the way he conducted himself at the end pierced his skeptical heart. And Mark records that it was the way that he drew his last breath. See, this practice executioner would know that crucified men simply do not cry out with loud voices. The process was too long and agonizing. The person had no strength left to breathe, let alone cry out like this. Jesus here, the Roman centurion understood, was clearly voluntarily giving up his life. And there's lots of other evidence concerning Jesus' voluntary sacrifice along the way, his silence during the tri trial, his meekness during the mockery. And maybe that's what clinched it for this Roman centurion. Maybe it was 
just the last piece of the puzzle when added to all the other evidences, the supernatural darkness, the earthquake that's recorded in other gospel accounts. Whatever the case may be, this most unlikely person, most unlikely convert, the Roman centurion responsible for overseeing Jesus' crucifixion, ends up making the first public profession of faith at the end of Jesus' grand finale. That that is remarkable. And he proclaims, truly, this man was the Son of God. Here's the reality. The light of the gospel can break through the darkest, most cynical, most skeptic heart. How might God break through your own skepticism and doubts or the skepticism of those in your world? in your family, at work, in your neighborhood. See, we may never know how God's going to break through the darkness and the skepticism until we're looking at what He did in the rearview mirror, but we can know that's what He does. In fact, it is His specialty to bring light out of the darkness. Lastly, the light of hope spread from the centurion at the foot of the cross to a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And we learn in Mark uh, 15, verse 43, that Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, the council that had just voted to find Jesus guilty and crucify him, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for his body. And we know from Luke's account that as a member of the Sanhedrin, Joseph had not consented to condemn Jesus to death. But still, Joseph is taking great risk. At great social cost to himself, Joseph was determined to honor Jesus in whatever way was left open to him. And so he went to Pilate and he asked for Jesus' body to be released so that, Je- so that he could make provision for Jesus' proper burial and Jesus would not have to be thrown in a mass grave like, like was common with all crucified criminals. See, Joseph treats Jesus' body with the respect due a king because we learn from verse 33 that he too was looking forward to the kingdom of God. And so, Joseph grieves Jesus' death with hope that maybe what he said will come true. So, as with the centurion, it seems that only a a speck of light, like a candle flame, has been lit in Joseph's heart. But faith that size, just a speck, is all that is required to move mountains. And as we'll see next week, we'll see mountains were definitely moved. And we're all evidence of it. So in summary, there you have it, Jesus' great finale the final leg of his journey with Simon of Cyrene, his final hours, and the first response to Jesus' death, God's response, which proclaims decisively and loudly the mission has been accomplished, and the human response, which at this point is only a flicker, piercing the darkness with hope. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus the God who didn't stay aloof from our suffering but entered in and took it upon Himself, the perfectly empathetic King who came 
to weep with those who weep, who came to bear their sins, but who came even more to pay for sin and its penalty and to overcome it and to overcome the power of death. And I pray for anyone here that hasn't wrestled through this reality in their own life that you would draw them to yourself and grant them repentance unto life that they might have a legacy like Simon had with Alexander and Rufus. Lord, we long to see you build your kingdom and redeem families. We pray that you would do so one heart at a time. In Jesus' name, amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.